Isn't that true, Lord? We just thank you for your presence here today, Lord. And we pray, Lord, you'll anoint your word as we go into the book of Titus that you gave to us, inspired by God. Lord, we thank you that it's going to speak to us, it's going to teach us, it's going to build our faith, it's going to illuminate us and expand our understanding. And thank you, Lord, it's going to help us to walk the talk. It's going to help us to live right. It's going to help us to glorify you and live in a way that pleases you. And Lord, we just thank you for this powerful letter from Paul to his son in the faith. In Jesus' name. Can you breathe a prayer, church, and say, Lord, I receive your word. Speak to my heart in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him, you're going to enjoy this tonight? Amen. Amen. Am I too loud out there or am I just loud to me? Am I okay out there? I'm okay. Okay. I'm good. I'm good. All right. Well, y'all look happy. You look like you've been maybe walking off what you did on Thanksgiving or regretting what you did on Thanksgiving or I tell you what, I feasted and I did it to the glory of the Lord. I truly buffeted my body. <laughs> All righty, we're going to begin a little walk tonight through uh, the book of Titus. Now, I've never, I have never gone through the whole book of Titus, and I know where I'm going after this. Now, I generally can't say that, but I know where I'm going after this. I'm going to do 2 Peter. Because 2 Peter and Jude are, are brother and sister, and they're so similar, and, and Second Peter is so powerful. I'm I, just in, in going into it a little bit to quote from it uh, tonight. The more I read, and of course in our daily devotion, we're, we're in Second Peter now. If you're still going through the Bible in a year with me, I hope you haven't dropped out. And if you have quit because you got so far behind, just grab today and keep going. Just start with today and keep going. But anyway, reading Second Peter just. Just I just thought, I, I have got to teach through this book, so I'm going to do it. But Titus is so rich, and let me give you a little bit of background on the book of Titus, tell you how it came about, where it, uh, how it evolved, and why Paul wrote it, and just give, you, just give you an understanding, a context for it. Paul wrote the pastoral epistles of 1 Timothy and Titus in the five-year period between his first Roman imprisonment, which was around 60 to 62 A.D., and his second Roman imprisonment, A.D. 66 to 67. Now, they're called pastoral epistles because 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus were written by Paul to two young men, Timothy and Titus, who were pastors. But they're loaded with gems and jewels of wisdom and, and um, revelation, and they're they're so much more valuable than just to pastors. So you're going to see that. Now, Paul wrote his letter to Titus while he ministered to the Macedonian churches, and Titus was ministering on the island of Crete. Titus was likely led to faith by Paul before or during the apostles' first missionary journey, since he accompanied Paul and Barnabas to the council of Jerusalem, that's in Acts 15. You remember we went through that when I was teaching through the book of Acts, when the whole big heresy issue of 
of the Judaizers, the teaching of the Judaizers, and you had to follow the Old Testament in order to be saved. You had to mix works with faith in order to be saved. All right, so that's what we're talking about when we say the Council of Jerusalem. After the Council of Jerusalem, Titus most likely served with Paul on both his second and third missionary journeys. Now, after Paul's arrest and while on his voyage to Rome, you know, Paul was always getting arrested. Now, he was just always getting arrested, but for a good thing, amen? Now, we're not to the place in America where you're going to get arrested for faith per se. There are certain things you can do that are biblical that will get you arrested, hate crimes and all of that. But when you preach like Paul preached, he was getting arrested all the time. After Paul's arrest and while he was on his uh, voyage to Rome, where he was going to appeal to Caesar, Paul briefly visited Crete. Now, Crete is one of the largest islands in the Mediterranean Sea. Look at the size of this island. 160 miles long and 35 miles at its greatest width. So if you were going lengthwise, it would take you about a three-hour drive to cover the island of Crete. So that's where Paul was. Now, between his first Roman imprisonment and second Roman imprisonment, Paul returned to Crete to minister there. And he later left Titus to continue the work while he went to Macedonia. Now, the apostle's letter to Titus was probably written in response to a report from Crete regarding false teachers. Now, if you read your New Testament, especially the epistles, Pauline epistles, the, Peter, the Petrine epistles, you read over and over again, Jude, the book of Jude, they're all really, a lot of what they wrote about was to counter false teaching. False teaching was a cancer that was working its way into the early church. And they were, they were constantly having to confront false teachers and the teaching the false teachers were bringing and dismantling it by the truth of the word of God. So, in the book of Titus, well, let me back up just a little bit. Like Paul's two letters to Timothy, the apostle gives personal encouragement and counsel to a young pastor who, though well-trained and faithful, that being Titus, faced continuing opposition from ungodly men, not from outside coming in, but from within the churches where he ministered. Remember Jesus' teaching on how the devil sows tares among the wheat? And tares, when they're young, a tare looks just like wheat. It looks like wheat, feels like wheat, until it's full grown. It's, it's just, it looks like wheat. You're convinced it's wheat. But then you realize when it's full grown, oh no, this was false. This was wrong. This was a counterfeit. So that's what was going on in the early church. False teachers were coming up within the church and teaching the people false teaching. Now, three summaries of our Lord's incarnation dot the pages of Titus, providing a beautiful understanding of what God did for us through Christ Jesus. And I gave you the verses there. Now, all three passages involve the appearance of God in Christ, which roots our Christian faith in the incarnation 
of Jesus Christ. When I say incarnation, here's what we're saying when we, by that word. Here's what we mean. We mean God was in Christ. And Christ was God. And that's the doctrine of the incarnation. So all three passages involve the appearance of God in Christ, and he wants to make sure that our faith is grounded in that, the immaculate conception, the miracle of God wrapping himself in skin and becoming one of us. Amen. Amen. We're going to see how Paul well understood that when a body of believers embraces sound doctrine, the result is changed and purified lives that produce good deeds. And it's mentioned four times. You know, I noticed in Titus four times, Paul tells Titus to tell the people they need to be involved in good works. Now, good works don't save you, but good works attest to the fact that you have been saved. So four times he talks about, be sure you tell your congregation, Titus, be sure you tell the churches that now that they're saved, they need to be involved in good works. They need to put feet to their faith. They need to get involved in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And James went so far as to say your faith is not made perfect apart from works. Your faith is never matured unless you're involved in doing something in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here in our church, we offer tons of possibilities for you. I mean, there's many, many, many ways you can plug in. But... God's desire was never that you sit, soak, and sour till he comes back. Amen? Amen? But, but quickly, I mean, hey, listen, I had a mighty encounter with God when I was 18. I was saved at 16, but I had a mighty encounter with the Holy Spirit when I was 18. And I mean, in a matter of weeks, I was involved in the work of the Lord. And I haven't stopped since. And I'm getting worse. I'm preaching four times Sunday, six times in the next few days, and, and, and I love it. I love it. And everywhere I go, I minister. I, I'm, I'm going to put feet to my faith. I'm going I'm to put my hand to the plow. I'm going I'm to join hands with Jesus in his work because he called me, not just for heaven, to be involved in good works. Now, we're going to get to that. But Paul understood that when you embrace sound doctrine, which we're going to talk about a lot tonight, when you embrace sound doctrine, it's going to result in purified living, clean living, and good deeds. Amen? Amen? God's grace is the motivation for all good works. I'm calling this series Right Living Filled with Good Deeds. Well, that's the gist of it. Right living filled with good deeds follows the truth that Christ gave himself for us to redeem us. Look what he came to redeem us from, from every lawless deed. How many of you can say, I was sure involved in some lawless deeds? That means sin. The rest of you, you're lying to me. Raise your hand. You were involved in lawless deeds. I'm going to try it one more time. How many of you were involved in lawless deeds? That's right. But look what, what he does here. He delivers us from lawless deeds and brings us into good deeds saving us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. What a powerful phrase that is. Now, the book of Titus continuously reminds us that what we believe about God impacts every decision we make. That's why you'll hear me say often, it matters what you believe about God. 
Because what you believe about, about God is going to decide how you live. So sound doctrine is crucial to godly living. Chuck Swindoll writes these words. Many churches today focus more on the form of their worship, music styles, lighting, building designs, than they do on the content of the faith they mean to proclaim. And while the form of a church's worship is vital to reaching its community for Christ, without a firm base of sound doctrine, the church will lay its foundation in shifting and sinking sand. Amen? So the, the method for reaching people may change, but the message better not ever change. Amen? Now let's begin our walk through Titus. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness. Now notice two words, bondservant. That's from the Greek word doulos, and it's the word the Greeks use for slave. We are slaves of Christ. When he says, go here, we go. When he says, go there, we go. When he says, stop, we stop. He's the boss, applesauce. Amen? Amen. He's boss and I'm not. We are doulos. We are slaves of Jesus Christ. But Charles Spurgeon wrote, you can be under bonds, yet not in bondage. And we are under, we are under bonds to Christ, but we're not under bondage. As a matter of fact, isn't it funny? The more you obey him, the freer you get. The more you obey him, the freer you get. And the more you disobey him, the more in bondage you become. Now notice that servanthood in Paul's opening precedes apostolic authority. Only a man who has learned to obey is fit to command. We're reminded of Jesus' words, well done and good and faithful servant. You have been faithful. You have been faithful. You have been faithful with a few things. Now I'm going to put you in charge of many things. You served well in the lesser things. Now I'm going to call you and give you greater responsibility over bigger things because first you served. Servanthood precedes spiritual authority. Now, verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. Now, you know, Paul would write things, and, you, and, and if you don't stop and think about what he just said, you whisk right past it. But I want you to look at what he just said. In hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised, when? Read it with me. Before time began. Everybody say, brain twister. Wow, this is a stunning statement. So let me just take you where that statement leads us. Eons ago, in eternity past, before there was anything but God in eternity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit decided to create the world and the universe. <laughs> and in their omniscience, which means all-knowing, they know that once they act in creation, the time will come when they will have to act in redemption. They knew this. They foreknew the fall of Satan, the fall of man, and the subsequent ruin of the human race. Now, I'm going to stop right here and tell you, 
this was a major theological problem for me for a, a long time. Because here's, here's what I would think when I would read verses like this. Well, Lord, if you knew that man was going to fall, and you knew that it was going to turn into this great big mess, and there was going to be so much suffering and so much pain and so much, uh, you know, anguish, and, and that millions of people were, would end up in hell, and, and there, there would just be so much trouble on this planet, why'd you go forward with it? Because if I were you, I wouldn't have done it. That, now that you get in trouble when you compare your thinking with God's. If I were you, never say to God, if I were you. Okay? But I would think, if I were you, I would not have gone ahead with it. If I had foreknown all the pain, anguish, heartache, I, I wouldn't have gone forward with it. Amen. Now I've come to an answer. You want to know what the answer is? Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Amen. Lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. I don't have an answer for that, except I know he's good, and I know he's right, and shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So it's not for me to try to figure out why he did what he did, because he's God and I'm not. Amen. But he knew, and knowing this, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost, pledged themselves to establish a plan of salvation that would offer nothing less than eternal life to fallen mankind. See, in that Godhead conference, Jesus said, I will go. Follow me, church. This is heavy stuff. Jesus said, I will go. They're going to have to be redeemed. I will go. I will give my life. It was settled. You were chosen in him before the foundation of the world, Paul tells us in Ephesians. You were chosen in him before the foundation of the world was laid. Heavy stuff, especially after a long day at work, right? But God the Son said to God the Father, I will go, and God said, I receive that. The plan was made before the world began. And sure enough, once Adam and Eve were created, they blew it. They fell into sin and ruin. But in the very presence of their failure, God filled their hearts with the hope of eternal life. Isn't that just like God that in the middle of your failure, he comes along with hope? Amen. Amen? God never leaves you just to perish in your failure. When we fail, and every once in a while you will, God comes to you and says, listen, repent and I'll forgive you. I've still got a future for you. I've still got a hope for you. I've still got a destiny for you. Don't give up. Keep going. While judging the serpent, God uttered the first prophecy in the entire Bible. He said the seed of the woman is going to crush Satan. And you find that in Genesis 3.15, which I call the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. Genesis 3.15 is the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. Now Paul continues in verse 3. But God has in due time manifested his word through what? Preaching, what I'm doing right now. That's why I love preaching. Because God manifests his word to others through preaching, what I'm doing right now. Amen. Which was committed to me, says Paul, according to the commandment of God our Savior. Now notice who he calls Jesus. He says, the Savior Jesus is God, God our Savior. Yes. 
The Savior Jesus is God. God the Father. God the Son. God the Holy Ghost. Now the phrase due time is the Greek, comes from two Greek words, idios kairos. And it refers to a time period marked by certain characteristics. When you see idios kairos, it means it's got the idea of things coming to a head at just the right moment, a favorable moment. We would say just at the right time or the ripe time for a thing. How many of you have ever just had something happen to you and said, wow, that happened just at the right time? Come on, just at the right time, just right on time. Well, that's what we're being told in due time, at the right time, at the favorable time. God manifested his word through preaching. In God's own unique time, he chose to send his son into the world. Paul uses the same verbiage, idios kairos, in other epistles. In Romans, he writes, I love this, he says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly at just the right time. When we were spitting in God's face, Jesus died for us. And it was just the right time. And we see that the word used for Jesus' first coming, kairos, is the same word used for his second coming. The Bible says at just the right time, this is 1 Timothy 6.15, at just the right time, Christ will be revealed from heaven by the blessed and only almighty God, King of all kings and Lord of all lords. We're about to celebrate Christmas. Now, Jesus wasn't born on December 25th. Don't kid yourself. But we're celebrating his birth. And you know what? When the cry of the baby Jesus first split the night sky in Bethlehem, it was the right time. And you know what? When the trumpet blows and he comes back, it's going to be the right time. Just the right time. Amen? Even though right now we feel like, hey, where are you? It'd be nice if you'd come back pretty soon. It's getting pretty bad down here. But you know what? He's going to come at just the right time. The Kairos time. Amen? Now, next, Paul identifies the intended recipient of the letter. It's Titus. He says, to Titus, a true son in our common faith. And then he gives his trilogy, grace, mercy, and peace. That's one of Paul's favorite trilogies of words. Grace first, followed by mercy. Because of grace, we have mercy. And because of mercy and grace, we have peace with God. So grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Then in verse 5, he reveals that he and Titus had spent time in ministry together on the island of Crete, where Paul left him to set some things in order. Look at verse 5. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. Now, see that phrase, set in order. You might want to underline that. It's a great phrase. It's found only here in the entire New Testament. And it means to set right again something that is defective. So the churches on the island of Crete were defective. There were some things lacking. And so Paul left Titus there to sort of be a troubleshooter and and a fixer of what was lacking or what was defective. 
Medical writers use the term to describe the setting of broken limbs. You know, churches can love the Lord and still be defective, still lack some things. Um, and so God doesn't call us to leave when we don't like what's lacking, but he calls us to help fix what is lacking. We don't bail ship easily. Now, to cure the chaotic conditions in the churches on the island, Titus was to ordain elders in every city. Now, I want you to notice the way God thinks here. God says, I see there are defects in the churches in Crete, so I'm going to leave Titus there, and I want Titus to become very skilled at picking out the right men to lead these churches because anointed men, given an anointed task and set in there by God, will play a huge part in fixing what is defective. So it's sort of like he was leaving doctors in the church, okay? So we can picture the young man, Titus. This is a huge responsibility because he's young. He's going to go through the island, locating the church in each city. Notice the church. Those were the days. There was one church in each city. And quietly seeking out men fitting the qualifications listed by Paul. Now, what were the qualifications? What, what does healthy leadership look like? He's going to tell us. So let's look at the list he gives Titus. After Titus gets this list, now he's got it. I can picture him carrying it around with him. You know, these days when I go to the grocery store, and it seems like I'm having to go all the time, I write a list, and I have learned to stick that thing on my little cart. And I've also learned to go at certain times during the day, because if you go at night when all these women in a hurry are there, they can hurt you. So I, I stick this little list, and, and, I, and I go through, and I, and I pick what I've listed. I can just picture him going through these cities with a list. Here's what I'm looking for, and he's looking at men, and he's saying, you know, tell me about yourself. And he did a lot of talking and a lot of counseling and a lot of listening to these men, and he started picking elders. Now, let's look at what the list said. Verse 6, first one, if a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. Now, let me just take these one at a time. The word blameless means somebody that could not be called into account for lack of integrity. They must walk the talk and live a clean life. Because listen, everybody, once, if you're in leadership and you make a mistake, there's a landmine under you. And you never know when it's going to go off. But listen to me, it will go off. See, we're seeing not only church leaders, but we're seeing politicians find this out. That that if you, and I'm not talking about little mistakes, but if you make a major error, a major sin, do something real wrong, that's a landmine under the ground. And you may think you're getting away with it, and the devil has a way of letting you think you're getting away with it. But the day will come, or will come right when you think you have really gotten away with it and everything's cool. Boom! And it comes out. So you know what he's telling them? Appoint elders that don't have to worry about landmines. Second, the husband of one wife. I don't know why anybody would want more than one. How many of you men can say one's all I can handle? Come on, everybody. <laughs> Some of you men are terrified to even lift your hand. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to tell you the truth. I don't think he's talking about divorce here. 
because the, the statement is too, uh, it's too one-sided. The husband of one wife, you could take that and say, well, gosh, if a guy has ever been divorced, then he can never be in leadership. And I don't believe that. It depends on why he was divorced and God is a forgiving God. And, and, I, and I don't want to go that direction, but I think he's here probably more than likely talking about um, polygamy. Because polygamy was an Old Testament practice that carried over in the New Testament. And there were still guys who thought they could do this and, and, and be okay with that. And so I think he's saying, I don't want an elder in a church to bring into the sanctuary several wives. And then he says, the elders should have children not accused of dissipation or insubordination, which refers to a life of wastefulness and an abandoned, unrestrained, sinful lifestyle. Prodigal son comes to mind. Out of the Living Bible, it says he wasted all of his money on parties and prostitutes. Here's the deal. Uh, he, I think he said in Timothy, he said, for if a man can't control his own household, how can he control the house of God? So it's one thing, and, and PKs go through so much, preacher's kids, they go through so much. They're, they're under a microscope. They live in a glass house. And I want to be careful here. God doesn't expect preacher's kids to be perfect he's talking about kids that have gone crazy and are living in abject sin he's saying he's saying those are that's a situation where he needs to be focusing on his household and not God's house okay now in the next verse he continues his focus on the qualification for elders and he says for a bishop and here's that word again must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, and not greedy for money. Let me deal with these one at a time. First, notice in verse 5, he used the word elder. But here he's using the word bishop. And those are two different words in the Greek language. And there's actually three words used in the New Testament to describe church leadership. And they essentially refer to the same function. Bishop is from the Greek word episkopos. And what, do you, what denomination do you think we get from that? Episcopalian. And then uh, elder is from the Greek word presbyteros. Which denomination? Come on. Presbyterian. And then shepherd, which is the word poimen. Now, I'm going to just pull Episcopos, and, and it gives us the essence of what a church elder or pastor does. It's two words in, in one. Epi, Episcopos. Epi, the prefix epi means on. Scopos means to look intently. So that tells us all we need to know. A pastor, elder, or overseer are called to keep a close eye on the condition of the body. The condition of the congregation. The writer of Proverbs said, Know well, know very well the state of your flocks. So you don't know, but I watch over you all the time. I, I pray for you. And, and the reason I'm doing this kind of teaching, going through the books, is because I want you to understand the word of God because I don't want you ever to be deceived. And I want you to be completely confident in the word of God, in the Bible as the word of God. 
And I want you to be fed the good word of God. There's nothing more I can do for you, nothing better that I can do for you than to teach you the word of God, which is able to build you up and strengthen your faith and settle you in God. So episkopos, to look intently, to keep a close eye on the condition of God's flock. All three words represent leaders chosen by God to watch over, protect, lead, and teach God's people. That's called the shepherd, the pastor. Now again, Paul uses the phrase above reproach, meaning a man against whom no serious charge can be made. Amen. Now next, Paul says not self-willed. Now he's going to start to meddle. So let's just meddle as Paul meddles. Not self-willed. That means not given to aggression. That phrase, self-willed, conveys the idea of being arrogant and self-serving, regardless what it costs others. Once a self-willed person decides on a self-serving course of action, he asserts his will and refuses to bend. We call them, in our day, control freaks. Control freaks. They're self-willed. To to the self-willed person, what I want is more important than what anybody else wants. And you can't lead God's flock that way. you got to do what's best for the body. Sometimes, whether or not it fits best or is most convenient for you. So he said, this man, self-willed man, is not elder material. And you know what? Let me tell you something. If you're a control freak, you're more than likely to have a stroke or a heart attack. And I'm not a doctor. That's free. But if you're a control freak, your blood pressure is going to go up. Because, you see, you're always trying to control everything. What a, what a relief it is to let go and let God and quit trying to control everybody. Because can I give you a little uh, uh, illumination and revelation tonight? You can't control anybody. Amen. They may do what you say on the outside, but they're standing up on the inside. Amen. Okay. <laughs> and then, not quick-tempered. The meaning is to be prone to anger, easily triggered. We would call them short-fused or touchy, quick-tempered. There's nothing more unnerving than being around somebody that's really quick-tempered because you're afraid you're walking on glass all the time. When that quick-tempered person comes home, even the pets hide under the couch because they know I can do the littlest thing and they're going to blow. You know, God wants to set you free from that, being quick-tempered. Um, that's a spiritual issue deep down inside of somebody. If you're that short-fused, there's something you're frustrated about, and I believe that God will help you to discover that and get you over the place where you're just, you're just easily triggered. It doesn't take anything for you to blow and scream and all that stuff. Amen. Not given to wine. Not given to wine. Now, the Greek meaning is over-fond of wine. Or sitting long at wine. (laughs) You sat down, you said, I won't be here long, and then two hours later, you're still there. On your third glass, your fourth glass, you ended up sitting long. I think I just hit a nerve here tonight. So intoxication is in view here. 
Rather than sitting long at wine, the elder that God chooses should instead be sitting long at the word of God. Now, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, um, for myself, for Jeff, I don't drink anything ever that is alcoholic. NyQuil every once in a while. But I don't drink alcohol. It's my choice. I, here's my conviction, and you can take it or leave it, because I can't tell you the Bible tells you to never drink wine. I can't honestly tell you that. But here's what I can tell you. I totally believe that with every sip you take, God-given restraints are taken away. Alcohol is a seducer. It seduces. Because every sip, you start getting looser. You start saying things that you wouldn't normally say. You start getting real happy and real friendly, maybe with the wrong person. And here's, again, my conviction. I don't believe that you can get filled with the Holy Spirit and be drinking at the same time. Now, that's just, I'm not trying to cast a restraint on you. You do whatever the Holy Ghost and the Word of God tell you to, but if you want my advice, okay, I wouldn't touch it. Now, I am always working on being filled with the Holy Spirit. I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And if I'm drinking wine or anything else, I don't feel capable of getting filled with the Spirit. It, 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 me and wine don't mix. I don't think it's good totally for anybody who names the name of Christ, but that's me because I can't tell you the Bible tells you to never touch it. It doesn't. But that's my conviction. And I'm leading the church with my elders, and that's where we stand. Now, but if, if you took me, and I, I've had church members take me out to eat, and they order a drink. You know what? I, I think they're still saved. And I'm not offended. In the least, I'm not offended. So I'm going to leave that right where it is. I want my wits about me. I want to be able to think clearly at all times. I want to be as strong as I can be. All the time. So, now next, not violent. Not violent. This is the person who will physically assault another person. A striker is what the King James calls them. Uh, and a striker is accustomed to bullying his way through life and getting what he wants by fighting. No such man should shove and shoulder his way into a position of eldership in the church. I had a friend, a good friend, still a friend. I haven't talked to him in a while. But he grew up a street fighter. And when he got saved, filled with the Spirit, he got called, and he got called into pastoral ministry. But he never got, fully got the street fighter out of him. And one day, there were some people in his church that began to uh, um, gossip about him and tell falsehoods about him. So he went up to the man, and he said, listen, I'm asking you to stop it. Now, this guy looked like a street fighter. He had the crooked nose. He had the, he had the big honking shoulders, and he looked bad. And he looks at this guy and he says, listen, I'm telling you to stop the gossip about me. And he said, if you don't, I'm going to talk to you again. Well, they didn't stop. Well, this friend of mine went over to his house one Saturday morning, knocked on the door, and when the guy opened the door, he decked him. 
and said to him, I told you to stop it. Well, it goes without saying, he quickly lost his pastorate. And he learned that as an elder, you can't be violent. Now, well, if somebody comes up and hits me, and they're going to keep on hitting me, I am not going to say, hey, do it again, do it again. I'm not going there. I'm not going there. I'm going to defend myself. But as far as vengeance and striking somebody, no. Not greedy for money. Uh Uh-oh. This is a requirement for elders. This describes the person who lives to make money. They live to make money. Their goal is to become rich. Money is their God. It is these kinds of people that often wind up embroiled in financial scandals in a church that we hear about pretty regularly. They give into their greed and they use the church's income for personal, selfish, unreasonable, or even dishonest gain. It says they can't be greedy for money and be a church leader. Now Paul turns to some positive attributes. He says, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled. That's verse 8. The word hospitable comes from a Greek word meaning loving strangers. It is to hold out a welcoming, friendly hand to passing strangers in order to reach them for Christ. Now, I always tag a statement like that with this. You got to be wise. Wise as a serpent, Jesus said first, then gentle as a dove. Ladies, don't pick up male hitchhikers is what I'm trying to tell you. Don't be stupid. there, There is a thing called stupid love. You love, but you're not wise with it. you got to be wise. But look at this interesting warning in the Bible. Don't forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Ooh. Can you imagine that? Somebody comes into your orbit, and it's actually an angel. And God's testing you. Now, again, ladies, he's not testing you with a male hitchhiker. He's not testing you to open up your door to a stranger and let him into your house. Be wise. I'm just saying, sometimes we can have an angelic being around us and not know it. He says a lover of good men. This might also be interpreted a lover of goodness. You know, it's easy to find a gifted man. It's easy to find a great man, what the world considers a great man or a successful man, but finding a good man is a lot harder. Goodness is the sixth fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, and I believe the gist here is it is good men that the elder holds close as his friends. It's good, honorable men he runs with. He's not not running around with dishonest, bad people. That would be very stupid. Then he says sober-minded. Hospitable, a lover of good men, sober-minded, just and holy. Sober means sound mind. Just is to do and to be right. This person weighs all the facts. He looks at both sides of an issue, and he decides the right course of action. He doesn't believe one side of an issue. He listens to both sides, and then he makes a right justice, a just decision a just man because folks there's always two sides 
holy, sober, just, and holy is to be pure of evil conduct. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, you are witnesses, and God also, how holily, that's wrong up there, I, I did that, how ho- not holy, but how holily, it's missing the I, how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you who believe. Then he says temperate, and that means having self-control. And then finally, verse 9, holding fast the faithful word. Oh, this is so important in our day. Holding fast the faithful word, as he has been taught, that he may be able, by sound doctrine, both to exhort and convict those who contradict. Now, you know what sound doctrine means? It's simple, healthy teaching. Sound comes from the Greek word from which we get hygiene. So it's talking about clean, healthy, balanced teaching. Doctrine is just teaching. Right now, I'm giving you doctrine. I'm teaching. And it's doctrine. So it ought not be some dry, boring word to us. It's, it's the teaching of the word of God. And we are learning doctrine right now. When I tell you that Jesus was God, that's doctrine. When I tell you God wrapped himself in flesh and became one of us, that's doctrine. In a properly functioning local church, the elders place great importance on sound, clean, healthy, balanced teaching. I'm not called to be a motivational seminar speaker. I'm not called to tell you God wants all of you to be rich. I'm not called to teach health and wealth, although I believe that God wants us healthy. I don't believe that's the full message of the word at all. I'm called to teach the whole counsel of God. The whole council. Now, we're told that in the early church, the baby Christians continued steadfastly in what? The apostles' doctrine or teaching. Their clean, balanced, wholesome teaching. Now, now Paul looked down the tunnel of time with the prophetic eye, and I'm going to close with this. And in both Timothys, 1 Timothy 4 and 2 Timothy uh, 4, Paul warns of the appearance of doctrines of devils. I think that might be 2 Timothy 3. Not sure. You can check it out. If I'm wrong, tell me I was wrong. But it's 2 Timothy. Anyway, Paul warns of the appearance, watch this, of doctrines or teachings of devils in the last days. And then in the last days, people will not endure. Catch this. They will not endure Sound doctrine. They will stop their ears up when they hear sound, clean, balanced teaching. No, 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 no. We don't want that. What do they want? What are they going to choose? He tells us. They will choose the teaching that comes from devils. Think about that. And he's talking about people who had claimed to be believers. They will turn away their ears from hearing sound doctrine and they will turn their ears to doctrines, teachings that come straight from the mouths of demons. 
Is that happening today? Oh, you better know it's happening today. Is it happening in America? You better know it's happening in America. It's amazing. I could go in some churches and teach sound doctrine, and they would throw me out. I'll give you a quick example, and I'll close. What about these whole denominations that are now saying it's totally okay if you not only um, put your amen on sexually perverted lifestyles, but it's also okay to anoint them and appoint them and ordain them to lead a congregation. Or it's also okay to marry two people of the same gender. That's okay. That's okay. And if you don't think it's okay, then you are a bigot, you are a hater, and they proceed to stick you with all kinds of wonderful adjectives. False teaching, doctrines of devils, have invaded the church from within. From within. I had a priest come to see me. And he had his own diocese. And he came to see me. He said, Jeff, he said, I need to talk to you because I'm in a real situation. And I said, well, what's your situation? He said, well, my, my denomination, and I'll go ahead and say it, that it was, I believe it was Episcopalian, had decided to put their seal of approval on marrying same-gender people and to ordain people living in perverted lifestyles. And he said, I couldn't take it anymore. And so I have left my diocese, and I have nowhere to go. And I said, yes, you do. Because you're right now taking a stand for the word of God. So God's will is your place of safety. But it was just amazing to me. Paul said, I see it coming. He said, the Spirit tells me expressly in the last days, they're going to depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines taught by demons. So next week, we're going to deal with the danger of false teachers. Can we stand together? How many of you are glad you came to church on a Wednesday night? Amen. Amen.